Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Rhetoric Podcast. We're going to treat you to a special session today with the three of us, Arun, Brad, and myself. Talk about what's been happening with the very, very busy year of 2019. Sort of like a flashback of fintech in 2019. Now, let's see if it has been a fairy tale flashback or a horror story flashback. Arun, start with you. What are some of the favorite things that you have seen this year or interesting things you've seen this year? All right. So let me start with where I come from. So the rise of India fintech, uh, rise of investments into fintech in India, really close to my heart. It's been Amazing to see that story uh, develop through 2019. Um, I think we've had some really interesting um, themes evolve in um, Southeast Asia, where you see a lot of lifestyle businesses going fintech. Uh, we see uh, Alibaba into Paytm, Tencent into N26, SoftBank Group into a new bank in Latin America, and those kind of uh, the big tech giants starting to uh, power play against each other. Um, in, in different parts of emerging markets. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and closer to home, at, uh, in the UK, I think we have challenger banks trying to get into the US market, which has been uh, a systematic, uh, strategic uh, kind of move this year. Um, and then we have China's digital currency. We have, uh, and then for me, the other bit that really is close to my heart is uh, the climate risk. Uh, mandate by the Financial Conduct Authority. I think they have managed to put uh, put together uh, a, a sort of a set of rules for banks to report on climate risk impact on their um, on their financials. So I think that's that's kind of what what what, what the key takeaways are for me uh, this year. And I'm happy to get into each one of those as we as we go along. Yeah. Um, let's start with the one of the interesting ones I think all, all three of us have been seeing, um, which is really intriguing, is <clears throat> what you call the lifestyle apps or the, the big techs, right? So if you look at uh, the ecosystem in the West, where we have the Amazons and the Googles and, and the Apples of the world, and what we have in the Far East in Asia, where we have the Alibaba, the Tencent, uh, the, the Gojet, right, um, in Southeast Asia, and, and all of those there has been a lot of a comparison made, um, one from the perspective of the amount of e-commerce that's been conducted, um, mobile payments, if you will, and how they've been conducted that are different, transactions different, um, but also so much so the ecosystem, the super apps, as Brett would like to call it. Um, so I have a question for you, Mr. Lima. Do you think we'll ever see the sort of ecosystem play that we see in Asia? between Line, which I guess they're doing a deal with Yahoo now in Japan, um, or, or Alibaba of the world. Do you think we'll ever get to that with Amazon and Apple? Well, I'm, I'm, I just step back for a second. I mean, since it just happened like yesterday, that Line deal with Yahoo is kind of interesting. Um, people are surprised at that because they don't really, I think, appreciate how much Yahoo is embedded in uh, Japanese culture. And um, so, so I think that we'll, we'll continue to see some more of that consolidation of large tech and commerce. But I don't think you're going to see it in Europe and the U.S. like you do in Asia. Um, I don't think that the grab equivalent is out there. 
people want to think it's going to be Amazon or Facebook or a combination of them, but I think that the pushback on privacy is going to be incredibly strong, obviously, in Europe, but I think in, in the U.S. as well. Um, we have a pushback when we talk about Facebook pay. We have a pushback when we talk about Amazon getting into checking and they just pulled back from it. So I think moving finances and social and commerce together is going to be more problematic anywhere but in Asia. And I think it's you know just a traditional sense of privacy, a traditional sense of monopoly. And people seem to be okay with four or five tech companies ruling their lives, but when it comes down to potentially one or maybe two, I think they're not as keen to it. I think I would agree. Um, when Google prematurely announced that they are going to be doing something with Citibank, <clears throat> although without much details, my first reaction was, why do I want Google to know more about my money? They already know enough about me. And do I actually trust them now compared to how I used to 15, 20 years ago? I would say the answer is no. What do you think about that, Irene? Because you guys seem to have more of a pushback, if you will, against the American digital giants um, and and what they do with data and privacy. Yeah, Europe has been um, has been on the conservative side when it comes to uh, data sharing. Uh, but I mean, I think it's 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 an interesting question because that's where most of the world, both if you take uh, the, uh, the the West from from a UK's perspective or the East from UK's perspective, what seem to be going because in the East you have Alibaba and the Tencent. The rest we have Apple's, Google's, then potentially Facebook uh, getting into the space as well. So um, that's where the world is going. The big techs are coming for uh, for banking uh, in a big way. Um, and and uh, I think in Europe, I think we've largely been protective from a data perspective, but we do have open banking as well. So uh, and then we, I don't think we've still figured out uh, how open banking is going to be covered from a data. Uh, protection and data privacy perspective, but the regulations are out there, but I don't see any controls mandated uh, from 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 a uh, from a purely from a usage of that consumer data perspective. Apart from that, from the fact that you have to have my counseling, there are a few startups that are coming up, uh, which I have seen through my uh, VC have where my VC had, where they come up with certain really cool privacy ideas and and data protection ideas, but uh, those that plus some of the uh, the, the big techs come coming together into the UK. I think I think we're going to see something really interesting over the next three four years uh, emerging. I mean, Europe. I don't think would be too much of a because I don't think Europe ever takes kind of a zero one position. They, they're not as absolute as say US or China in 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 in, in, uh, in dealing with some of the regulatory aspects. They have a very collaborative approach. Uh, to, towards uh, towards innovation and uh, players in the innovative uh, innovation landscape. Um, however, one thing I think uh, the tech giants will also note when, when they get into Europe in a big way is existing challenger banks. Uh, I see challenger banks becoming windows of uh, the big techs. So N26, uh, uh, the invest, investment of Tencent in N26 is a great example. I think you'll probably see that happening across the board with some really big numbers, big money, big monies flowing into Monzo's, uh, Monzo Revolut and, and some of the other challenger banks from tech giants. If, if I 
if my prediction gets uh, goes right i think that would that would be a really good way for them to get it to I agree. Challenger Bank is a big theme for this year. Um, based on the CB Insights FinTech uh, quarter three report that just came out, it says Challenger Banks have raised over $3 billion year to date in 2018 um, and uh, just $1.3 billion in uh, the third quarter, which, which is a high um, for the quarter. There's been multiple unicorns. Uh, I think the latest is New Bank from South America that's valued at $10 billion. Now, yeah, massive. Yeah, massive. it's it's massive, yeah. um, and and them crossing the ocean uh, to the U.S. That's also interesting as well. Um, what what's your take on Brad? Um, I know that you've been watching that space, um, and there are a few that have been making attempts or have made attempts. Well, I think that the big thing from the report that just came out was that the numbers are going to be a little bit down from eighteen to nineteen. But you, you know look at these numbers and you kind of forget and financial and like their big investment surge in Q2 of last year. And so, you know, without one or two companies sort of dominating the investment space in FinTech, I think 2019 is actually an incredibly strong year. Um, what's different though, I think is that the rounds are bigger and they continue to get bigger. There's less sort of seed activity, I think, than in the past in terms of volume. Um, and there's less small companies being funded. It seems like everybody's sort of pouring into established firms and just making ridiculous uh, rounds into things that are not profitable yet. Uh, and I think that's something to kind of talk about because when you when you think about N26 and Revolut and Monzo and others thinking about markets like the US, I don't really see them having a path where even if they have five or 10 million customers that they'll be profitable. I think that there are much smaller institutions that have learned how to have a breadth of relationship beyond a prepaid card and, you know, the occasional insight into someone's spending. Um, and so I think it's going to be a challenge for any investor to get money out of a lot of these new banks. Um, the reason why something like new bank in Brazil um, is so potentially interesting and, and potentially profitable is because there's nothing like it there. They're not going into a ecosystem in Brazil and South America that has a lot of people using cards and a lot of people using digital. It's not the same in Europe. It's not the same in the US. So I think that that's what you have to sort of level set it at um, is what is the money chasing? Is the money chasing something that's just going to go into unprofitable businesses? We can't continue to do that. I, I agree. And I, I think I have a two reactions to it. One is that what you just said reminded me of what Revolut said, which is um, being profitable is not one of the metrics that they're planning to measure, um, which, you know, I, I would challenge that should be one of the things that people always have to think about when you're, doesn't matter if you're a startup or incumbent, um, in the end of the day, you need to figure out a viable business model, a sustainable one. Um, you can't just think about starting a business and the only thing you're thinking about is exit how do you sell it out um, but but the other point you, you you point out about new bank and the other challenger banks in different areas it makes me think of um, also when, when you were talking about open banking in Asia there are multiple markets that have stood up or standing up uh, digital only banks right so from Hong Kong they granted eight 
virtual licenses and so so does Singapore. Um, I think they went with six um, and different ecosystems, right? Taiwan is thinking about it. Um, so is South Korea. But if you look at a lot of these ecosystems, right, I, I would say they are fairly mature uh, from a financial services perspective. Um, they have a lot of banks, a lot of branches, a lot of services available, I would say, in a lot of these markets. They're all already overbanked. Where do we think these digital-only banks are going to go? Um, do you I see think, a viable space for them? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of work that, that could be done. I mean, for me, especially around Southeast Asia and, and Asia, it's interesting because there's quite a lot of uh, opportunities for financial inclusion. Um, and, and especially with the internet penetration uh, coming up. So touching upon internet penetration, I should talk about India because over the last three years, we have had 400 crores, which is about 0.4 billion people getting on the internet thanks to Reliance uh, Geo. And that has triggered quite a lot of businesses that rely on internet for their business models. Um, I've personally invested in one of them too. Um, so what you see is that business models that weren't uh, viable or, or scalable in the past are suddenly starting to become low-hanging fruits today. Um, and based on that, I just want to share one, one stat here because you have Paytm, which was uh, which, which had about 51% of the market cap in India from a payments perspective. Until about last year, we had Walmart's uh, phone pay app, which is another payments app in India. Uh, they had about 27% of uh, the of the market and in the last 12 months they've gone up from 27 to 46 percent so they've gone about 19 20 20 percent of they've taken 20 percent of the market in just 12 months um and this market is going to be a trillion dollar market by 2023 so internet penetration and if you look at uh, a lack of banking infrastructure legacy infrastructure i think between bring them together, you're going to see a you're going to see a leapfrog. I think that's the opportunity. When you look at the investments into this space, though, I think you just kind of reiterated the point that it has to be a market where there's an allowance for change. Um, when you have this sort of overpenetrated market like the U.S. or in many cases Europe, but uh, I think that the, the two are quite different in terms of being sort of overbanked. Um, the opportunity to include more people into the system is sort of an interesting thread to pull on. I was reading an article the other day, I think Theo had shared it, about whether or not inclusion um, really is something that we're achieving. Is people's access to a payment system really improving their lives financially? I think in some cases when you include credit and you include the ability for people to start small businesses and the like, uh, it'd be great to see more investment into companies that are making that type of difference where people are actually being able to create more income opportunities and create a sustainable sort of um, you know, family model where over generations they're improving their lot in society. And so I think that we're all sort of passionate about this idea of inclusion. But the more I see uh, these applications being set up, I do truly wonder what in the end of the day their business model is derived from. Um, where, where is the heart of the model? And, and where, where are we going in terms of true financial inclusion? Yeah, I think tangential to that, um, while I, I love a lot of the 
the use cases, for example, that came out from Africa, um, the impact of MPESA, for example, on, on local communities. One part of me, something that, that stuck with me when we were talking with one of the startup um, founders this year, actually, in one of the episodes is she said, um, lending is easy, right? But responsible lending is hard. <laughs> and I think part of what I do worry about, even, you know, in the U.S., but also, you know, in, in places like India and Africa, Southeast Asia, where the availability of alternate data source, the availability of technology enabling more people to get access to credit. Are we giving them credit and also helping them to understand what it is that they need to do to pay it back? Or are we extending credit for the sake of extending credit and thereby getting them into a worse off financial situation? Right. That question sticks in my mind. It's been sticking in my mind a lot. So, for example, you look at one of the trends that we have this year, again, going back to payments, seems like a very interesting space. This year, a lot going on besides the mega, mega deals is that there are more and more ways that fintechs are coming up to enable people to buy more things. Right. Let's get this additional thing. You don't have to pay anything. It's just a, a a smart play of, of installments that we used to have, but make it easier to for people to consume, 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 and consume more. But is that a good thing to do in the end? We're coming okay. into the Christmas season. I mean, come on, we have to buy stuff. <laughs> I mean, you know, the 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 singles day record, what thirty eight billion or whatever it was. Um, talk about consumption. I mean, singles day, yeah. Th- this is this is this is why you know thirty billion dollars later we have more cardboard boxes in the world and we have more delivery services and we have, you know, people riding around on bicycles and other things delivering boxes that we buy, the things that we don't need. Um, it, it makes me think about, you know, we, we, we have questions around profitability for fintech startups, but we also have questions around why they're doing what they're doing. Are they looking for exits? Are they looking for, you know, eventual ways to um, be acquired or go and have an IPO? Where, you know, where do we go to get more aspirations? You know, the aspiration bank here um, in, the, in the States. Where do we go to have more companies backed by the flourishes around, you know, a mid-years VC um, firm? Um, how do we actually define purpose in what's happening in fintech? And in some ways, you know, I, I look at the amount of investments in infrastructure and sort of B2B uh, fintech startups that are building out the next iteration of core systems like Neocova and uh, payment platforms that are enabling banks and fintech startups to create new business models that are making traditional banks more efficient and serve their communities better uh, and, and help them actually have an extension of life. Um, because a lot of community and regional institutions need to become more efficient in order to you know, be around for the next 10 or 20 years. Most of these fintech startups aren't. So that's why when you start building a sustainable business model, you have to look at, you know, why people are doing what they're doing and what the end game is here. Because I just, I look at the, the thousands of fintech startups that have been invested in the last, you know, say, say five or 10 years, and the majority of them won't be around. So you have to create a sustainable business model. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency 
that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. So when you talk about sustainable business models, it brings me to the new passion that everyone has around sustainability and climate <laughs> risk. But it is it is true though, right? So you know, brought you brought up a good point about the thirty eight billion dollars um, singles day. Are we celebrating the fact that consumers are spending that much? But then if you look behind the scenes, all of the packaging and all of the boxes and everything that are left behind, how are we cleaning it? And bring it back to the U.S. Look at all the Amazon deliveries that we have every day. I'm not picking on Amazon, but all of these um, gig economy companies, all of the e-commerce companies, all of these new business models, new types of companies that are delivering services, delivering goods, enabling us to consume more, to spend more. On the flip side of it, how we how are we building a sustainable future, not just from a business model perspective, but also from a climate perspective, just like what Joita said in our last um, you know, episode, she said, you know, homo sapiens, we're one species. We live in one world. This is the world we live in. Absolutely. I mean, um, I think you know, homo sapiens are the, the cleverest species uh, that exists today. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility as well. Um, um, and uh, I think we're kind of, at this point, I see us failing that or not, not not uh, taking up that responsibility. Um, and uh, if, you, if you think about it, I mean, just going back to some of the points that uh, Brad mentioned around viable business models, um, I have been quite vocal on, on social media and, and on daily fintech, uh, big time uh, criticizing SoftBank's strategy in investing into um, the likes of uh, uh, Uber and WeWorks and kind of taking trying to take them into IPOs. And, and, and the kind of the failures we've seen from that point. Uh, but there's another, another stat that kind of, uh, kind of in, 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 in their difference, there is one stat, which is Amazon was, in, was incorporated in July 1994. They, got, they, made the, they reported their first profit in Jan 2004, which is almost 10 years after they, they, they started business. So there is still an option to keep going with that if you are confident that your business model after a point of taking the market, is actually going to start making money for you. Um, I still feel uh, I still feel, feel that it's time for some of the fintechs that we talk about, like Bonzos and the um, and, and 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 the revolutes of the world. I'm definitely excited excited for them. I still think actually um, they can bring more intelligence to scale their business models across different product lines, uh, deliver cleverer products. Um, at cleverer context for clients, I think that that definitely can scale. However, I think one of the things that we have seen this year as a trend is that most of the investments that's happened have gone into really huge deals, like pre-IPO deals, and and big big rounds have been closed. We are not quite seeing that kind of enthusiasm towards early stage and venture deals. Um, the the, uh, the the numbers have really dried up when you look at. Uh, investments going into that space and one of the things that because I operate in the early stage uh, my, my, my venture capital operates in early stage uh, investment so we see that quite a lot of series A deals have uh, 
have uh, been drawn to their knees because LPs are starting to pull out their money. It's a, it's a, it's a trend. We've seen about four companies that's that's had their problems this year in the last seven to eight months, which is which is starting to look like it's it's drying up capital in the uh, early for the early and uh, venture uh, stage companies, and that is going to uh, create poor pipeline of innovative companies for the next two to three years. And we're going to see that as well. So um, it's going to be interesting to see the next two to three years in terms of how these business models evolve and uh, how the innovative, uh, innovation ecosystem is going to treat those business models and, and, and the investment ecosystem as well. Yeah, I would, I would challenge this idea that homo sapiens are clever um, since we've killed off like 70% of what <laughs> used to be living on the planet. But, um, you know, the, you know ha- hashtag uh, die off or whatever you want to like. It's survival there. of the fittest, Brad. Oh, my goodness. It's just going to be us in like a rock, you know, in a couple uh, decades, I think. It's really sad. We'll be walking around with like uh, breathing masks with oxygen tanks all around and looking at the desolate landscape. Um, if it, that's, but that's the thing. It's like we just, we, we squeeze and we squeeze and we squeeze. And this is what, you know, a lot of ventures looking to do. It's like, let's just squeeze and find the profit in those little tiny margins. And that's, you know, it's, there's too much veneer here. I want to see companies that are building value. I want to see companies that actually have a point and a purpose. I believe yesterday, uh, Arun, you were heard earlier today, you were talking about point and purpose and, you know, if if we don't take venture dollars and put them into companies that we truly believe in, um, then then what's the point of all of this, right? So Are you talking about the, the tweet with a lot of exclamation marks, Brad? There was a lot of exclamation marks in that. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't do a hashtag or an exclamation marks, but uh, Arun, what what is what is the point of all this? Like seriously, like you're investing in things. You know, let's let's make more cardboard boxes. Well, I, I think there needs to be a, a top. I mean, there are there are two ways to um, address this. There needs to be top-down um, initiatives happening from a policy perspective. Uh, governments need to get involved in actually driving some of the sustainable uh, sustainability initiatives um, across the world. Um, but there's also got to be individual uh, efforts that we all can do to our lifestyles. The, the way we look at products, I mean, we can say, okay. If, if you, if I have to go buy a, a, a shampoo from a, from a uh, from a particular brand, I'll only buy if they if they tick X, Y, and Z boxes. If they give me give me a shampoo, a pack of shampoo in, in a plastic container, I'm not going to buy that. How hard is that kind of decision? Um, uh, but we don't do that. It's, these are all very minor uh, lifestyle changes that we can make, and it has to be both bottom bottom up and top down, and that will be a point of convergence. When consumers demand for sustainability, brands and, and businesses will have to oblige. At this point, I don't see that happening in our societies. You're asking consumers to vote with their wallets. But right now, I think most consumers are voting for whatever is more convenient and easy for them, right? Not saying they're all like that, but I, I think that that is one of the catch. I would say, too, though, to Brad, your earlier point um, about purpose, it's not just about purpose. Purpose is important, but it also needs to be have something viable. So, you know, I go back to some of the comments that some of our friends in the ecosystem has been talking about challenger banks. It's not enough to just come up with a you know wonderful 
mission statement that says you're going to do good and all you're doing is you're just providing consumers with a really, really pretty UI without offering additional value, right? Mm -hmm. So consumers go for a little bit more than a pretty user experience. User experience is important, but at the end of the day, what additional value are you offering them? How are you helping them in their financial journey? I think that part is important that when I look at a lot of these startups, it's what's lacking. All you're doing is you're repackaging what I'm already getting from my bank. What additional value am I getting other than I have yet another app to download? I have yet another thing to manage. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the, the, the purpose of, of what we're trying to build here is uh, still in question to me. And I look at, you know, some of these companies, again, that are enabling um, more efficiencies in the marketplace and sort of these back office investments and everything from AML and KYC and, you know, enabling sort of an API um, sort of layer to, to make older banks you breathe new life. Um, it still is not going to address the question of how finance and our lives are sort of intersected. And that's, this is, you know, sometimes the efficiency of the super apps in that model uh, is really interesting. I just wish that we had more choices. Um, and then the continued evolution of open banking across the world, uh, I, I hope opens up sort of new business models that are more sustainable. But, um, you know, I don't know, five years ago at something there, I was looking at um, trade finance applications that, eventually would leverage blockchain to enable consumers to understand sort of the authenticity of goods that they were buying. Um, not so much, you know, what they were packaged in, but just the fact that they were what they said they were, or, you know, things didn't include certain ingredients uh, or, you know, were not supporting um, causes that people were against. I, I think the transparency and the march toward understanding not just what we buy, but how and the whys and the who's and what's involved, I think will continue. Um, and we're just sort of in the early steps of more consolidation in the space and more sort of intersections between tech and banking and our daily lives. And it's, it's an exciting time, but at the same time, after like looking at this stuff for 10 or 15 years, I think we're all sort of at this point where it's like, okay, well, what's the next shoe to drop? We keep on waiting, I think, for shoes to drop. So Let's maybe transition a little bit into some of those, you know, shoe drops. What do, what do you kind of expect in the next uh, six to 12 months that maybe people aren't thinking about? What about that? That is a billion dollar question. But to what you were saying, shoe dropping, actually, I was thinking about robots dropping because that's what people have always been talking about, right? Robots going to take over the world. And we're all going to turn into useless little human beings in the Wally movie. Um, I actually don't, of all the trends people keep talking about, I don't see that one happening. If you look at a little robot, not to mean to, you know, keep picking at the same big bank I've been picking at this year, but having a cute little robot in a branch doesn't really do much for me. Maybe it's just me, I'm biased. But um, if you can actually use that technology, use it for good, help me figure out my finances so I can be a little bit less stressed, Um, help me figure out all of the different responsibilities and obligations that I have as a, you know, Gen Xer, which nobody talks about Gen X is always OK Boomer and millennials that are angry. Um, I think that would be useful, right? So looking at looking at how do you actually help consumers and the different life stages and navigating towards that? How can we use technology to help unite 
generations instead of tearing them apart. Um, that is something I have yet to see. Maybe that is something we should figure out for uh, the next episode where we start thinking about the next year. What what could be the potential uh, ramifications of AI for next next uh, two to three years? I think there still need to be um, still need to be some work done in that space. I I genuinely because I see quite a lot of companies every day using AI doing really meaningful stuff uh, for the for the society for the consumers for themselves and 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 for the larger um, uh, uh, larger global economy. But what we are seeing uh, what we've seen is people rushing into technologies such as AI and blockchain as if they are golden bullets solving everything about every every single problem that they've got in life. Uh, but one thing that we have we have seen with AI is that it's only as good as the data it runs on. That that the uh, the data it makes its decisions based on. Um, and unfortunately, we've we've been feeding garbage data so far. And until that changes, machines are going to be handicapped. Um, I think that you probably will be seeing as a trend over the next twenty four to thirty six months, where that that component of AI is probably going to be cleaned up a little bit. I would actually even take it one step um, further. Is are we doing AI because it's a sexy new word or are we doing AI because there's actually a business case for it to be done, right? Because if you look at all of the reports from the from the big consulting firms to, you know, the, the little ones, everyone on the surface of the planet are saying either they are very interested in AI or they're doing something in AI. And I would question what exactly are you doing or are you just overhyping because overhyping any t- technology is actually not good for it either. I see promise of using the technology. However, I also see more perils. And so it's a question of, are we being smart about where we deploy the technology? Are we being thoughtful in where we're using it? And where would we be able to use it that create more impact? So for example, a lot of the use cases we see in AI and financial services focus around anti-money laundering, focus around making your back office operations more efficient, right? It goes back to how do we squeeze more out from our current beast that's running, that's powering this, this giant industry and ecosystem. But what if we can actually extend it to create a different paradigm where we're not just squeezing every single cent and penny out from our consumers, but actually use that to help them create a better financial future? Now, I was just going to say the majority of bank um internal bank AI or machine learning or data efficiency sort of plays are really about squeezing more profitability out of the existing business model. And that's the the problem that I have with most of the efforts is it's, it's geared toward reducing headcount. It's geared toward um, making money where money doesn't exist today or making a, a bigger margin or at least a sustainable margin on an existing business flow. Um, that's the challenge that I think the, the creating value from data and the creation of new business models that have mutual benefit with consumers and customers across the sort of existing traditional system um, is the the, the problem um, that we're not thinking about leveraging data in new ways. And this is what tech companies will always have on traditional businesses is that they look at the ability to kind of bring people into an ecosystem and keep them there as really their modus operandi, right? They 
are thinking new ways to leverage data to give value in exchange for um, people's eyeballs. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is at the end of the day, most of the tech firms, their business model relies on advertising. And that to me is still something that <laughs> needs to be explored. So again, lots to discuss around data and where things are going with new applications. I think the applications for AI, I think they have been, um, uh, that, that, have, that have been very impactful and, and sustainable and scalable um, applications um, across several industries. Um, with finance, uh, rather health and wealth, let's put it that way. With both health and wealth where AI is being used, I think there needs to be a lot more governance and controls because one, it's hurting. If it's health, it's it's people's life. And if it's wealth, it's, of course, people's money. So I think there needs to be a lot more caution when we deploy new technologies, which we haven't really understood very well yet. Um, and I think that that is perhaps what, what we're going to see in the next, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the near future. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up our current episode, but stay tuned for the next one where we will chat about our own personal predictions and um, crystal ball for what we foresee happen in the near future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.